Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for September 2022, where our panel of palliative care experts keeps you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our co-hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Leonie Herks, are joined by their special guest, Dr. Anna Volk. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care ECHO Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hello and welcome to our fourth session of the Pallium Canada Journal Watch series. It's hard to believe that we're at the fourth session. We started this a few months ago, and I think it's being received very well. The numbers of people joining us are increasing, and we're also seeing a lot of downloads of the webinar sessions, as well as the accompanying podcasts through the website, and interestingly, from across the country. The Pad of Care Journal Watch is a regular series of webinars and podcasts that help you keep up to date with the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. This program is led by faculty of the divisions of palliative care at McMaster University and at Queen's University in Canada. We regularly monitor about 20 journals and identify papers that either challenge us to think differently about a topic in palliative care or confirm our current practices. The lists of potential papers are then submitted by the team of faculty and the editorial team then selects by consensus four to five papers that we then share in the webinar. The webinars, as I said earlier, are then transformed into podcasts. And please do visit our Pallium Echo website for links to Journal Club and the podcasts as well. In each session, we also provide honorable mentions. These are papers that we think are very interesting, have potential of changing what we do, or as we said earlier, confirming what we do. But unfortunately, we don't have enough time in each session to cover all the papers. So please do look at those lists of honorable mentions on the website after the session. The Journal Watch program is part of the Palliative Care ECHO project, which is supported by a financial contribution from Health Canada. The Pallium ECHO project aims to cultivate communities of practice to advance palliative care in different settings and areas and to support continuous professional development amongst healthcare providers across Canada. And clearly, we're seeing people from other countries as well joining us, and you're all very welcome. We invite you to visit our website. That's the ECHO website at www.echopalliative.com, where you can learn more about the ECHO project and its sub-projects, and also see a list of upcoming ECHO sessions that you're very welcome to join. In today's Journal Watch session, we'll highlight and discuss our top four article selections and provide a list of honorable mentions, as we said. This session is being recorded and will be emailed to all registrants within the next week and a recording of each webinar and the accompanying slides and links to the articles covered will also be made available on our website and you can see the link 
on the slide. If you simply Google or search echopalliative.com and then enter Palliative Care Journal Watch, you'll come to the website. As mentioned earlier, you can also listen to our sessions through the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast. And we really encourage you to invite colleagues to sign on to the webinars and or download the webinar sessions or the Pallium Journal Watch podcasts. This is a one credit per hour group learning program that has been certified by the College of Family Physicians of Canada for up to eight main pro credits with a one hour session is worth one main pro credit. Who are we? Um, your two co-hosts are myself and Dr. Leonie Herks. I'm Professor and Director of Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, and also Scientific Officer and Co-Founder of Pallium Canada. And I'll let my colleague Leonie introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Leonie Herks. I'm the Division Chair and Associate Professor of Palliative Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston. Thank you. And Leonie, do you want to introduce Anna? Yes, so we're thrilled to have Dr. Anna Work join us today. She's assistant professor in our division of palliative medicine at Queen's and has a special interest in palliative care for underserved populations. Thank you. In terms of disclosures, just to remind you, Palliative Canada is a not-for-profit organization. Over the years, we've been funded largely by Health Canada and also by wonderful contributions from other organizations, including the Canadian Medical Association. This particular program within Pallium Canada, the Journal Watch, is part of the ECHO program, which is funded by Health Canada. I receive a stipend as Scientific Officer from Pallium Canada, and Leone and Anna have no conflicts of interest to declare and just to let you know that the scientific planning committee of this session, so the editorial team, had complete independent control over the content of this presentation. Today's articles, there are actually five articles, two we've clumped together, and I'll come to that very shortly, but they cover an interesting spectrum of topics. We start off by looking at palliative care from the public health lens, and Anna will take us through that. We then found a very interesting paper on palliative care and experiences of people in prison, and we thought that it'd be important to highlight that population. The third and fourth papers go together, and they address the topic of the use of opioids in situations where a patient has hemodynamic instability, specifically addressing the concerns that people often have, that healthcare professionals have, especially those who work in intensive care programs about providing patients with opioids. And then the last one looks at existential suffering. So at this point, I'll hand over to Anna for the first paper. Great. Thank you, Jose and to Leone, and it's a pleasure to be with everyone today. So the first article that I was asked to present is entitled Public Health Palliative Care Reframing Death, Dying, Loss, and Caregiving. And this was written by Dr. Abel and Professor Keller here. It was published in Palliative Medicine in May 2022. And to start off with a bit of the background, we all know that the basis of palliative care practice has been to relieve health-related suffering of a terminal disease as defined by the World Health Organization. And this definition has limitations, which has led to gaps in the theory, practice, research, and education of palliative care. In order to address these gaps, a more inclusive population-based approach that the authors recommend considering is public health palliative care. So this ed is an editorial written by invited leaders with expertise in the area of public health palliative care. Uh, so I'll present some of the key messages of the article, and that will help lead us into discussion afterwards. So first, the practice of public health palliative care recognizes that death, dying, loss, and caregiving is mainly a contextual or social experience that affects all of us. And the relationships we have with people and places 
and social ecology have significant impacts on health and well-being. And it's this social context of dying that provides the basis for public health palliative care. It's not just a focus on the clinical aspects of managing symptoms, which is important, but includes the network's relationships that surround the person who is in front of us. So they have this nice summary of how a public health approach to palliative care balances several issues. And this includes the balance of illness and disease with health and well-being, professional help with self-help by families and communities, harm reduction with concerns for prevention, and not only the physical and psychological problems, but also a balance with the social determinants for those problems. So why is this article important? It shows us that public health practices can help achieve a vision of care for a whole population and highlights the need to understand and act with and alongside communities and partners to address palliative care's vision of whole person care and quality and continuity of care at the end of life. So this would include neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, places of worship. And clinical aspects of palliative care must include public health concerns to expand the focus of palliative care. Otherwise, we will continue with what they refer to as late care and crisis management, which is, I guess, more reactive um, than it would be proactive. Access to palliative care requires a greater commitment to looking at the social determinants of health. And this is especially important as they mentioned that challenges of accessing palliative care by cultural minority groups in low resource countries and by populations that are underserved and socially marginalized are of big concern. An expansion of existing practice models must include the networks of care that surround people with serious illness. As sort of discussed earlier, is that we need to be looking not just at the patient, but also those people and networks that are around the patient. And these include people who care for them, who are also grieving. And this can have a lasting impact on their own grief and also their health and well-being long after the patient has died. And looking forward to the next steps, developing care models to serve human diversity requires decentering of usual clinical and research ways and consideration methodologies that assess the social context of palliative care and broader impacts of public health palliative care practice. And so we're asked to re-examine what interdisciplinary means in research, and that includes social sciences, health promotions, public health ethics, social policy, and cultural studies. Can we actually bring those into our research as well? Strengths and limitations, the authors are leading experts in this field, and they encourage an emerging way of looking at palliative care and moving from only considering a narrow, basic fundamentals way of looking at things and to include an expansion or a redesign. Again, the limitations are that it is an editorial. It's not sort of the typical evidence-based research study that we look for. And we may think it's easier said than done, but it's something that needs to be said. And I think overall, this article does so in an eloquent way, and it encourages us to reflect and examine how we currently provide palliative care. So we just wanted to kind of open it up for a discussion at this time. Thank you, Anna. And please do feel free to submit any questions or, or comments into our Q&A or chat box area. And while we're waiting for some, I was going to maybe throw this out to the group. I find it very interesting looking at the development of palliative care services from the lens of public health, because the way I see it or interpret it, the strengths of it is that the goal is that everyone has equal access to palliative care when they need it. And in reading the literature around public health lens, for me, one of the things that really jumps out, and I'm wondering whether this jumps out to you and to, to Leonie as well, is if we may use the word of democratization of palliative care, where it really strengthens the palliative care approach done by all healthcare professionals, anyone else caring for patients with progressive illnesses across all settings, 
of care specialty areas, the non-cancer populations, the cancer populations, supported by specialist palliative care teams, and in some cases, specialist palliative care teams taking over the care, but not as often as I think sometimes we see in some groups. So for me, it's that model of primary and specialist palliative care and the whole community all working together. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it comes back to that idea of palliative care is everybody's responsibility. And people, not only healthcare professionals, but the people who interact closely with patients to come alongside and journey with them. And I think, you know, there are a lot of unsung heroes around us in our neighborhoods and communities who are there, who are present with the people and may actually provide more meaningful, in a sense, palliative care than perhaps professionals could with our medical or clinical focus and lens. Thanks. And I'll just add, I think I learned this term from you, Jose, but really we're talking about a collaborative approach to care. That includes collaboration, as you've said, Anna, with our members of the community and every person that is part of that person's life, healthcare professionals, as well as friends and family. I'm eager to get to the Q&A. I see quite a few comments in here. So if I may, I'll start with a question from Mary Ann Chance. She comments that she sees the public health approach to palliative care as pushing for the demedicalization of death and dying, similar to the natural birth movement in the 1970s. So how do healthcare professionals partner in this? Anna, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks for the question. I think that's really important. I think, again, this is sort of Historically, again, we think about, you know, with palliative care, how it started is just people coming alongside of people and journeying with them. And I think just as in this article suggests that we have to look beyond just ourselves as a healthcare team and actually involve and, and as you say, collaborate with the people who actually come alongside their family members or friends or loved ones. And it may not be family per se, but it's who they consider their family or friends that can actually provide the best support. I think we have to encourage that and remember to bring in these people as well that are important to the patients that we're caring for. Yeah, thanks, Anna. I think the word that stuck out to me in the article and that you've spoken to as well is that it's the social movement, like dying and death has been over-medicalized, but it's actually part of our social fabric and trying to get back to that is what I see the compassionate communities effort, which is one of these community responses to public health approach to palliative care, as we have an attendee comment on that as well. I'm going to be a bit provocative here. It depends on how one interprets the word medicalization. And it's absolutely true. Right across many countries, we're seeing over-treatment, if I may use the word futile treatment many times, and that's what's often referred to as the medicalization. But I've always had the concern that we do these pendulum shifts from one extreme to the other extreme. And the medicalization, I think, went to one extreme, and that is just the medical aspects of it. But I think in defense of the medical field, we need to really encourage and teach healthcare professionals to see patients as whole persons, not just a diagnosis, but people with their own stories, the wishes, their contexts and make sure that we also include society, the communities. And my fear is that we then go to another end of the pendulum again, where the medical aspects of it are then also not included. So I, I'm hoping that we can really, through this public health lens, get that holistic, complete approach with all aspects. That's the social, the medical, the psychological, the spiritual, all coming together. Leonie? I agree with you. And I think the social word just struck me because just to make sure that we're focusing 
on that community piece that yeah. also includes the medical piece. And as someone put in the chat box, certainly evokes the whole Compassion Communities program, which is very much part of the public health approach and the importance of Compassion Communities alongside the clinical care that patients receive. And then just want to highlight what our colleague Chris Klinger put in there, just reminded us that just last week, the seventh public health pad of Care International Conference was held in Bruges in Belgium. And I'm sure it's going to go from strength to strength. So people are interested in this area, in this field, keep an eye open for the next public health pad of Care International Conference. And I think it's over to you again. Great. Thanks. So that's a good segue into the next article, which is palliative care needs and experiences of people in prison, a systematic review in medicine. And this was done by Schaefer and colleagues and published in Palliative Medicine in March 2022. And I just wanted to give a bit of a background. We know that the global prison population is growing and aging and are generally in poorer health than people in the community. And there's this increasing need for palliative care and end-of-life care for people in prison with advanced life-limiting illnesses as well. And that this provision of palliative care in prison is very variable, particularly in different countries, but even within those countries, they have different models of care. So the objectives for this study was to identify perceptions of palliative care provision and dying in custody by people in prison. And then the second objective was to identify perceived barriers and facilitators of person-centered palliative provision in prison. And it was designed to address three research questions. Number one was, how do people in prison feel about the prospect of dying in prison? What are the experience of palliative care provision in custody for people in prison? And what do people in prison perceive are the barriers and enablers of palliative care in prison from their experiences? In terms of the methods, this was a systematic review and a synthesis, which is designed to be interpretive and allows for development of new meaning and concepts from primary data. The search was done in June of 2021. Keywords and mesh headings included palliative care, end-of-life care, death, and prison. And the articles were from high-income countries with qualitative data exploring perceptions of people in prison of palliative care in custody, and they were published in English. They adopted a broad definition of palliative care as being the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual care that people are likely to die in the next 12 months may need within months and days to weeks. The extracted data was related to responses provided only by those experiencing incarceration. The results identified 2,193 articles with one additional one that was found by hand searching and at the end of it, 12 were included and these were published between 2005 and 2018. The experience of people in prison regarding palliative care had two main themes. The first was expectations versus experiences of palliative care and this included expectations of equitable palliative and supportive care, being able to build a connection with clinicians in prison differentiation between just and unjust punishment. And this looked at the idea of human rights and dignity and restrictions that healthcare played in terms of adding to unfair punishment. And capacity to make choices is severely limited. And then the second theme that came out of this was prison context complicates access to and provision of palliative care. And under this, they found that physical environment complicates quality of care in terms of accessibility. And dying in prison adds complexity to mortality. And so this is really about how people are contemplating death and dying in the setting of prison and how they have lack of social supports. So people in prison expect to receive palliative care of the same quality and accessibility as in community. And they described that their experiences did not reflect this. 
The prison environment can restrict access to palliative care, resulting in feelings of isolation and powerlessness. And why is this article important? So first of all, it highlights that people in prison who have palliative care needs think that life-limiting illness and death in prison is a further loss of liberty and punishment that goes beyond what is considered humane and dignified. And they believe that there is a limited capacity to provide respectful and dignified care at the end of life in custody. It also identifies a need to improve provision of evidence-based, person-centered palliative care in prisons globally by identifying area-specific best practice care strategies based on principles of palliative care. And it demonstrates that strategies to improve care should address systemic policy, organizational, and structural barriers in the prison system, and specifically designed for prison environment, so that they do receive adequate psychological, social, emotional, and physical support during end-of-life care. Some of the strengths and limitations, the strengths are is that it is probably one of the first metasynthesis, according to the authors, to interpret the data, and it's an attempt to fill a gap in the existing literature. It highlights important themes consistent across the settings. The limitations include that only high-income countries' articles were included, and half of them were actually from the United States, and provision of palliative care in prisons are variable, and so they aren't actually generalizable. The data analyzed also included reported quotes in the literature as opposed to the actual interview transcripts, and it doesn't take into account healthcare providers, corrections staff, or peer caregivers' considerations. Also, the articles were published prior to COVID-19, and of course, we know the limitations that has had on care in general, and the articles did not provide participants with the definition of palliative care. So I'll leave it at that and maybe open it up for discussion. Ashley, I have a question for you, Anna. So in reading this paper, I know that you've been interested in this work and have been in contributing to a national dialogue on palliative care needs for persons in prison and are looking locally at program development into the federal penitentiary system. So I'm wondering what are some of the barriers you've experienced and how they compare to what was presented in this article? Thanks, Leonie. Yes, it's been interesting actually working currently with mainly the federal prisons. And I think a lot of the issues that were highlighted in this article actually are consistent with what I see in lived experience, the limited experience that I've actually had so far. And, you know, the population in prison is aging. And I think the tricky thing is about access to palliative care, equitable access. There are the physical restrictions as mentioned in this article but also what are the models? The, the, the models that they looked at were from the United States, which include peer support. And so if people aren't able to have end-of-life or palliative care, they have special sort of hospices within the prisons. And then you've got the UK model, which looks at community colleagues to help support that and trying to get people out for a more sort of a, a compassionate release or allowing people to spend the rest of their days, weeks, months, years outside the prison system. And then I think the Australian model, along with another country, had looked at more specialist palliative care. So people would have to actually be sent out to a tertiary environment. So I think the challenges are really recognizing that palliative care is important in these settings and how the model, I guess, is going to be different. And even within the prison itself, there are different areas and, you know, you've got medium security and high risk and maximum security and the barriers there are quite different from one another. So I mean, I can talk about this forever, but I'll leave it at that. I noticed a comment in the Q&A box from one of our attendees that says, it's additionally challenging when incarcerated individuals are rarely treated as individuals or as whole persons to begin with. Palliative care seems to be a direct contrast to the existing state. Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because, I mean, we have a lot of federal prisons in this area, and yet it's unspoken of, I think. It's interesting that it doesn't come up as often as I think it maybe should. Um, But yeah, I think, again, even in the article, it talked about human dignity and human rights. And I think there can be arguments about whether or not people are receiving equitable access to, I mean, I think good care in general, not just palliative care. It's hard, I think, when people see in the media what people have done and not treat people as human beings. So yeah, I think that is another barrier that we need to address as well. Excellent. Thanks very much. The paper that I identified and will be sharing with you was a paper published by two colleagues working in the Division of Palliative Medicine in the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, Fukui and Woodingham. I found this a fascinating case report. And basically, the authors start off with a background that says that a common clinical concern is that opioids may cause or worsen hypotension. And this is hypothesized to be on the basis of histamine release that then causes vasodilatation and then the drop in blood pressure. And the authors highlight that then very few, if any, guidelines on the use of opioids for patients with hemodynamic instability. So I thought of several examples over the years that I've helped care for, and often it's been in the intensive care unit where someone may not be clear that they are at the very end of life, but that there's a very high potential risk that they are at the end of life requiring opioids. But there's a fear that if opioids are administered, they may become hemodynamically unstable and actually perhaps die from that while the team is still trying to do treatments that are curative or with the goal of controlling the illness. And so over the years, I've seen a few cases where called into the ICU patients in severe pain, but a fear to start opioids. And so that's why I found this paper very interesting. So this case report is about a 77-year-old woman who is hospitalized with end-stage renal disease requiring long-term hemodialysis, diastolic heart failure, um, as well as psoriasis, which necessitated the treatment with methotrexate. And that resulted then in methotrexate-induced cirrhosis. She was admitted to hospital, and it turned out to be a really long stay with numerous complications that included ascites with draining of the ascites, infection of the abdomen in the form of a peritonitis, and septicemia. And then she started experiencing very, very severe pain in the legs, particularly in the thighs. And when they looked closer, they saw these lesions appearing, purple, reddish lesions. And then a diagnosis was made, facilitated by actually a CT scan, which they made as well, of calciphylaxis. So this calcium deposits in the subcutaneous tissues resulting in necrosis and very, very severe pain. And we know calciphylaxis can cause very significant pain. The patient was started on oral oxycodone at five milligrams orally every six hours, only on an as-needed or PRN basis. And at the time, it was recorded that the attending physicians, they were not palliative care clinicians, I would presume internists or critical care physicians, expressed concerns that continuing with the opioid would make her hemodynamically unstable. And it appears as though there was this big debate going on within that service about whether or not to use an opioid to treat this excruciating pain. And so they engaged the patient with goals of care discussions. It appears that they then provided basically two options to the patient. And the first one was a comfort-focused care approach in which the opioids would be administered and from their perception that it could well cause hemodynamic instability and therefore accelerate death. The second was to continue dialysis and treatments directed at the disease, but no opioids, obviously 
without any analgesia, the patient would be experiencing excruciating pain. So they did call in at this point the palliative care team. And so the palliative care team arrived and sounds like offered a more sort of balanced approach where they said, look, we do think this patient needs to be treated for the severe pain and basically shared with the attending team that the opioids do not necessarily drop their blood pressure. And I'll come back to that. So they suggested actually a change to hydromorphone at a dose of 0.4 milligrams intravenously, again, on an as-needed basis, a PRN basis. That was started and then titrated over the following four weeks to reach a dose of hydromorphone, one milligram intravenously every four hours, almost next And so what happened during those four weeks was the patient continued to have hemodynamic instability with systolic blood pressures ranging from the lowest of 50 to the highest of 170. So you can see these large fluctuations. And they reported in the paper that although episodes of hypertension did not appear to be temporally associated with the hydromorphone administration, the staff continued very nervous and worried about giving the opioid. And then during what became her final hemodialysis session, she had a transient decrease in blood pressure to a systolic blood pressure of 42, screaming out in pain, and then became unresponsive. Hemodialysis was then discontinued. Focus of care was changed to comfort only, and the opioid administration was then continued and liberalized, as they described in the paper, and the patient died peacefully. So clearly died from the advanced kidney disease and the other comorbidities. In the author's discussion section, they quote several small studies that show contradictory results whether or not a histamine is released as a result of opioid administration and also the effects on blood pressure. And I'd encourage you to read the paper because it's really a nice summary of these different small studies. They do quote one large retrospective study, a Canadian study actually, looking at patients so being transported. They refer to it as critical care transport. So I presume it's patients who are obviously very unstable and being moved to critical care units or hospitals. So it's a retrospective study looking at the records and they found hypotension in 1.9% of patients on fentanyl, so very, very small number, and in 2.3% of patients on morphine. Again, very, very small numbers. But interestingly, they highlight this, that hypertension appear to be mainly unrelated to medication administration and more related to the disease or pathology that was causing the patient to be very sick. So not appear to be related to the opioid. The authors describe and quote that available limited literature may support a dose-dependent association between IV morphine and histamine release and consequent hypertension. However, the incident of hypertension from morphine is low and the effect appears to be transient. So the authors raise several questions. One is, what would be the effect of other opioids such as hydromorphone with respect to histamine release and impact on blood pressure? The effect of oral versus parenteral opioids are the different effects. And then patient factors such as pharmacogenetic variability. And they highlight that these are areas that need to be studied further looking forward. They do conclude that there's little evidence that quantifies this effect, namely hypertension and strategies to minimize risk are lacking. And then they conclude finally that when hypertension is observed in a patient receiving opioids, providers must seek to identify other causes of hypertension rather than assuming that the hypertension is caused by opioids. Now, in response to this, one of our colleagues out in Vancouver, Pippa Hawley, published a very interesting response to the paper by Fukui and colleague. And what Pippa highlighted was that a major learning point had been missed, that hemodialysis removes hydromorphone 
And we also know that hemodialysis removes morphine as well. So it removes hydromorphone and the metabolites from the blood. Therefore, when this patient was receiving the hemodialysis, the analgesic, the opioids, was being removed from the blood. And hence, she argues, a possible cause for the severe pain exacerbation and highlights that this pain episodes could have been preventable by providing hydromorphone PRNs during and after hemodialysis. Pippa Hawley argues that a switch to methadone could have been considered because methadone is not removed with hemodialysis and may cause less histamine release. And then she also highlights that in this particular situation, there wouldn't really be a concern about liver clearance. The patient did have cirrhosis, but Pippa Hawley highlights that you really need to have very, very severe liver disease in order for it to affect the metabolism of the methadone. So why are these articles important? I think they highlight an important clinical issue that arises for both attending teams and palliative care teams in patients, such as the one described in this case study. I like both papers because they present useful discussions about the use of opioids in these situations. I did find it interesting that neither paper looked at, and especially the paper by Pippa Hawley, what if a patient cannot swallow and has been switched over to methadone? Because in Canada, at least, we don't have parenteral formulations available. Other countries do. We don't have in Canada. Another warning or caveat that I would add is that there's a small proportion of methadone that is actually eliminated unchanged via the kidneys. And you see varying percentages in the literature. Anything from 10 to 20% is unchanged by the kidneys. So although methadone is often suggested as a good opioid in the context of kidney failure, I still think that there perhaps should be a slight dose reduction to take into account renal clearance. And then also neither paper looked at fentanyl because fentanyl is also not removed by hemodialysis. So we'll open for any questions or comments. I'll just jump in. I certainly have seen a hesitancy in colleagues that we are providing a consultative service for, for patients that have moderate low blood pressure. And if we've provided recommendations to use opioids, they haven't followed through on our recommendations because of the concern of hypotension. So it would be good to clarify with our colleagues and think about what's the best approach in terms of education to help them understand that it's not clearly contraindicated in the setting of hypotension. You have any thoughts on that, Anna or Jose? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Leonie. I remember oh, I was about two or three years into my palliative care practice and was asked to see a patient, a young lady in her early 30s with two young children who had just been recently diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And before the treatments could really be started to try and control the disease, had developed septicemia and ended up in the intensive care unit. So they were obviously trying to resuscitate her. The original reason why she had gone into the emergency room was because of excruciating pain caused by, by the cancer. And so, and I vividly remember this young lady in the ICU screaming out in pain, and they asked us to come and see her, but were asking us not to start opioids. And so we were in this dilemma, like, what do you do? And we were finally able to convince him to start opioids with small doses and slowly to find the, the balance. But it is a real clinical challenge. I'd love to see if it's anyone else who's got similar experiences or perhaps solutions or more insights on this. It's interesting some of the the points you brought up. And, you know, I was just thinking there's hesitancy even, like I, I also wondered about the fentanyl. And I think there's some hesitancy too in using fentanyl given the context socially, but also some places there is difficulty accessing sort of continuous infusion of fentanyl and hesitancy from healthcare providers using it in certain jurisdictions as well. I think challenges in terms of sort of opioid phobia, so to speak, in different settings. I think just by, by way of context, with hemodialysis, you have the machine, as it were, and then you've got this diaphragm. And 
the molecules that are larger in size literally are captured by that filter. So they are taken out of the blood system, whereas medications with very, very small molecule sizes, such as fentanyl and methadone, are not captured by that filter. And so I think it's important to know that with hemodialysis, the opioids that are not cleared out, that are not removed by hemodialysis are, or we believe so far, are fentanyl, buprenorphine, and methadone, whereas hydromorphone and morphine, my understanding being larger molecules, are cleared from the system. So therefore, you're removing the pain medications from the blood. Oxycodone seems to be partially removed. Thanks, Jose. I will have to move on to our last article. So I get to present this very interesting article by Louise Bolton and colleagues who are from the University of Sheffield in the UK. And it was published in Palliative Medicine in April 2022. So I think we all know that COPD is a leading cause of death worldwide, but that in general policies and approaches to palliative care and COPD have tended to focus on management of physical symptoms such as dyspnea. But we also know that COPD can really have disruption on a person's way they're living their life, their existential situation, and can lead to existential suffering. But to date, there's been no published comprehensive synthesis of existing research that looks at existential suffering for this specific population. So the objectives for the study were, of course, to address this gap and provide a comprehensive synthesis of the existing evidence of existential suffering and look at themes of that type of suffering that arose in patients with advanced COPD. So the methodology involved using a published methodology for an integrated review, which allows for the merging of findings from different data types on a particular topic. So that allows you to pull together qualitative and quantitative studies, as well as systematic reviews. And it's an interpretive approach that allows for the development of an understanding of different themes. So in this case, the phenomenon of existential suffering in the daily lives of those living with COPD. They reported their review findings using the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis, the PRISMA guidelines. And their inclusion criteria was studies that were published in English for adults that were 18 and older, and that specifically focused on the exploration of existential suffering when living with advanced COPD. They did exclude studies that focused on spirituality, religion, anxiety, and depression, where the outcome measures were not related to specific components of existential suffering. And they used a definition of existential suffering that was related to the absence of life meaning, purpose, hope, and social connectedness, posing a threat to one's personal identity. They searched nine electronic databases and used a comprehensive list, predefined search terms for COPD and existential suffering, which they provide document details of in table two in the paper. And they did the searches between March 2019 through to January 2021. And 35 papers met the inclusion criteria and were included in the review. In those 35 papers, there were 1,453 participants that were included, and of those, just over 1,000 had either severe or very severe COPD. They provided a synthesis, basically, of the international evidence from those studies that looked at five themes they were able to glean from the reviews that impacted the lives of those persons living with COPD. And I'm just going to briefly go through the themes. So the first one was the concept of liminality, which is a feeling of living in a liminal space which is really a sense of uncertainty and a continuous effort to process the reality of their new life with the limitations of how they experience their illness. It looked at feelings of loss and grief for their former selves and uncertainty about their future self in the terms of how their COPD might progress. In three of the studies, they specifically looked at how these feelings of living in a liminal space hindered the patient's adaptation to their new life circumstances. 
The second theme was a feeling of lamented life, which encompasses thoughts of emptiness, hopelessness, worthlessness, and desolation that they described living in a liminal state caused the person to experience sadness and hopelessness at their current situation and really being unable to identify how their life might be in the future. And of course, there was grief experienced about the loss of their former life, which led to a feeling of a lack of purpose and feelings of worthlessness and low self-esteem. Of note, many of the studies noted that patients welcomed input from their healthcare professionals on how to facilitate interventions to address these feelings of worthlessness and low self-esteem. The third theme was loss of personal liberty. Participants were frustrated that they could no longer pursue hobbies and pleasurable life activities that used to give their life meaning and purpose and restrictions to, due to their lack of ability to leave their home in particular seemed to have the greatest impact on that theme. The fourth theme was life meaning. Attitudes towards their illness were influenced by how participants adapted to their illness. Some were able to identify contributions to society that gave them an ongoing purpose. For example, they were a good mother or a good grandmother. Identity that wasn't taken away by their loss of physical functioning due to their illness. Or they were able to maintain or discover hobbies within their physical limitations that allowed a sense of achievement. So really, and there was a very interesting sub-theme that came out of this one, which looked at the value and impact of interactions with healthcare professionals and access to supportive interventions that influence the life meaning. And then lastly was existential isolation. So the loss of intimate and sexual relations with partners and the challenge of maintaining social relationships with limited opportunities to meet with friends outside of their home, some of which might be due to physical limitation with shortness of breath or fatigue, but also social embarrassment that they experience with chronic cough and excessive sputum production. So these were just five of the kind of key themes that came out of the review. And I think it really highlights areas of existential concern and the impact on the daily lives of those living with COPD, but how as clinicians, we might be able to explore these domains when we're thinking about patient assessment and delivery of holistic person-centered care. And the authors identified a need for a conceptual framework and further research to guide addressing existential well-being as part of this provision of holistic palliative care for those with advanced COPD. Some of the things I thought were interesting that they talked about in the discussion was, you know, is there a relationship between these unaddressed feelings of meaningless and hopelessness in a desire to engage in treatment, to address symptom control and things like pulmonary rehabilitation that, you know, we know lack of motivation and demoralization are associated. And is there any link between that and non-compliance and pulmonary rehab? So it opened up all kinds of new questions for me about how do we better understand the existential needs of persons living with COPD and then how do we begin to address that in our clinical care. So just very briefly, I know time is coming short here, but only papers were published in English and between 2019 to 2020, of course, there may be papers that were missed. And the integrative review methodology is both a strength and a limitation because it can certainly bring together all different types of methodologies, but because of that, it may result in some reduced rigor and bias as well. So I'll leave it at that so we can have some discussion before we need to wrap up. Thank you. Thanks, Leonie. I'm looking at the Q&A. I thought it was a fantastic paper, uh, really looking at two areas, right? One is the palliative care for patients with, uh, with lung diseases, so non-cancer patients uh, with lung diseases, and also highlights the whole topic of existential distress and suffering and spiritual care that is often neglected. Anna, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I was struck when I read this article of, of 
how deeply impacted in terms of the existential distress that people with COPD experience. And I think sometimes, well, first of all, we don't see as many people with COPD comparatively with other patients with other disease and illnesses, but I think we hone in on, are you short of breath? And a lot of them, you know, have coped so well with whatever mechanisms they have, perspective breathing or whatever to, to try to accommodate. And, you know, we say that dyspnea is a subjective feeling and a lot of them will say, no, I'm not short of breath. But for me, anyway, I sort of forget about the fact that there are other symptoms and other issues that they may be experiencing. And to actually read about that in the article is made me stop to think, you know what, I think I need to do more exploration of what these people are feeling. So yeah, it was a good, good article. Yeah, the physical limitations, you know, I do think about, but I hadn't really thought of the, the social implications and the coughing and the excess sputum and not being able to potentially leave your house to engage in those things that used to, used to find meaning. And I think that was very eye-opening for me just to reground me in, in a different way I can approach supporting some of these patients. And the conceptual framework that they came up with, I found very, very useful. It'll help me rethink this whole topic. Good. I see we're almost at the top of the hour. I don't see any questions or comments. So perhaps let's go now before we sign off from this session to the honorable mentions. And there are seven of them. The first one is a paper on clinicians' perceptions of collaborative palliative care delivery in chronic kidney disease. Again, so we see the theme of non-cancer popping up again. The next one is palliative care, patient-reported measures and outcomes in hospitalized patients with cirrhosis. There's a fascinating paper on permanent tunnel drainage of ascites in patients with palliative care needs. There is a rapid review of end-of-life needs in the LGBTQ plus community and recommendations for clinicians. I think this is a must-read for everyone. There is a fascinating paper that helps us look into the future and all this new emerging medicine of targeted and individualized treatments. It's a paper on the pharmacovigilance in hospice palliative care, the net effect of amitriptyline or, or nortriptyline on neuropathic pain. An excellent paper entitled Pad of Chemotherapy for Breast Cancer, a population-based cohort study of emergency hospital admissions and place of death. And then the final honorable mention is acceptability of voicing values and advanced care planning intervention in persons living with mild dementia using video conferencing technology. So we'd encourage you to go to our website at echopalliative.com palliative care journal watch section and you can download those honorable mentions please do fill out our feedback survey that feedback is very important for us to keep fine-tuning the series we're hoping that sometime in the future they may become monthly there's so much to be reviewed and so if we can do it more often we'll be able to review and share with you more papers recordings slides and links to the articles from our session are available on the website that i shared with you earlier and to listen to the session and previous sessions check out the palliative care journal watch podcast and we hope to see you at the next session i'd like to take this opportunity to thank our whole team of monitors who are monitoring the the uh, the journals from mcmaster and from queens and a very special thank you to the Pallium support team, Holly Finn, Diane Evans, Aliyah Mamdeen, James O'Hearn, and Williams. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, and we hope to see you at the next session. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at p-a-l-l-i-u-m dot c-a. Or 
visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Holly Finn. See you soon. Thank you.